Father, we thank you for uh, the scriptures. Um, we thank you that you have revealed yourself uh, to us, that we, we, uh, we don't simply have to guess uh, based on what you've revealed in creation, but we can look at uh, your specific, special revelation uh, through scripture, which then ultimately leads us to, uh, to, to the revelation of Jesus, uh, how you have shown yourself through Jesus' life, through his death, through his resurrection. And so, God, we, we are grateful that you have spoken to us, um, that, that you love us, that you care enough about us, uh, despite our brokenness and our sin, to, to reach out, to, to lower yourself to our level, and to speak to us in, in words and in ways that we can understand. God, would you be with us this morning that we would uh, understand this text, that we would see your, your truth in it, uh, we would embrace that truth, we would see the goodness of that truth, Lord, and that you would change us through that truth. God, we, we don't simply want information for the sake of information, but God, we, we, uh, we need transformation. And so would you transform us uh, through the truth in this text, and would you uh, allow each of us to encounter Jesus Christ uh, in deeper and fresh ways uh, by virtue of our time together this morning. So come by your spirit and draw us close to your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is uh, one, of the pa- one of those passages um, in Scripture that is not one that if you uh, are kind of picking a passage to preach on, it's not one that you would just go to. This is not one of those passages that, that you go to uh, and just say, hey, I, I would love to preach on this passage. Uh, this is one of those passages where you really only encounter it if you're preaching through a book of the Bible, because this is not a text that people kind of line up to say, hey, Let's teach about this really bizarre thing that happened in this church and how to correct a really weird thing and problem. Uh, and so I want to uh, just give you a couple of points of, of preface um, that, that if you're coming into a church today and you're like, hey, you know, maybe church, maybe you already thought church was kind of weird, um, then this passage, <laughs> the first time you hear it, you're going to be like, wow, I was right. Church is kind of weird. Um, but this passage has a, a lot of good things for us in it um, because it touches on a couple of things that naturally we wouldn't think to discuss or think to talk about. This passage is going to show us uh, the gift of correction. That correction is really actually a gift. Not a curse, not a burden, but a gift. So I know you're interested in like, what is this passage about? So let me just read it and then we'll jump into it proper. So the Apostle Paul is continuing his letter to, uh, to the church at Corinth, continuing to uh, encourage, continuing to correct. And now he, he gets to this critical issue that's happening in the life of this new church in a diverse, dense, global city. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, God through Paul speaking to the Corinthian church and to us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed." 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so you see why this is not a passage. That people just on their own are like, hey, what should we preach for Easter? 1 Corinthians 5, right? And yet, there's a gift for us when we actually, this is the benefit of actually preaching through books of the Bible. It forces us to encounter and to think about the things that naturally we wouldn't necessarily want to think about or encounter. It's a gift to us because there's a gift uh, of truth and of good news that's for us even in a passage like this. So to set the context, Corinth is a major, dense, diverse, uh, wild, uh, sexually charged uh, port city uh, in the first century. Uh, And the church of Corinth has been established because Paul comes to this city in fear and trembling, not wondering how the gospel is going to be received, but he comes to this city, preaches Jesus, and God draws people into the kingdom. God softens people's hearts. God brings people to the knowledge and trust in Jesus, and the church is established. And yet, as we know through this letter, this church has many ups and downs following the wisdom of their city, following the wisdom of their own hearts, and struggling to embrace the wisdom and the truth of God that they have heard through the scriptures and from Paul. And now, Paul speaks to a major issue within this church, something that is happening in this church that would not even be tolerated, the text says, by the non-Christians in the city something that wouldn't even, be, uh, wouldn't even be accepted by this wild, uh, diverse, global, sexually charged city. A man is sexually involved with his stepmother. And, as the text says, it is actually reported, this is the sense of everybody knows. This is not a uh, one-time thing something that just kind of you stumble into, something that happened. But the sense of this is that this, uh, this man, this believer, this person, a part of the church, has engaged in this sin and is persistent with no remorse, with no sense of repentance, with no sense of struggle, with no sense of grief, with none of that, but is just persistently stubborn and engaged, saying, this is what I'm doing, and if you've got a problem with it, there's, there's, that doesn't bother me. And we notice when Paul speaks about this, notice what he does in verse 1. He says, there is something happening in your church that not even the non-believers in the city would be okay with. Roman law wouldn't allow this. And Paul says, there's something happening in your church that not even the Romans would be okay with. And you would think in the next verse, he would begin to talk about the issue. He would begin to correct the man. He would begin to speak about why this is so wrong. But what does he say in the next verse? and you are arrogant. Paul is not even so much concerned, it seems, with the sin that's happening, but with the church's lack of response to this problem. 
Paul is mostly concerned with the fact not that there is gross sin happening in this person's life, but with the fact that everybody else in the church community is not bothered by it one bit. And rather, they're arrogant. Rather, they're prideful. Rather, they're boastful. And Paul says, rather than being prideful about how great your church is or how spiritual you are or how sophisticated you are, shouldn't you be mourning? Shouldn't you be crying? Shouldn't you be grieving? Shouldn't you be in tears over the sin that's happening in this person's life? Now, when we look at this text, which Paul speaks into with serious correction, the Corinthian church doesn't think it's a big deal. And some of us might look at this and think, wow, this is weird, this is fascinating, this is interesting. But some of us might struggle to see the immediate relevance of a passage like this to a person like us. Right? You're thinking, well, this is, this is not my sin struggle. So, so what does this passage have to do with me? I want to read you a quote from a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, that I think can connect us into this passage. He says, nothing that we despise in others is inherently absent from ourselves. Nothing that we despise in others is inherently absent from ourselves. What he's saying there is anything that we see and we feel uh, a sense of, uh, of, of, of revulsion or a sense of disgust or a sense of, oh, I can't tolerate that. I can't stand that. That is so wrong. Anytime we see that, the seeds of that very thing exist in us. Because like that person in that circumstance, we too are marked by sin. And so as we look at this text, while we may not struggle or feel this temptation to fall into what this person has fallen into, we too need the correction that this text is giving. And here's why. This person, we don't know a bunch of background, but this person, I highly doubt, woke up one morning and thought, you know what? I have a great idea for something that, that I should get engaged in. And I think that's what I'm going to do. No way. There were things that happened probably slowly over time that brought this person to make the decisions that they made. And so first thing I want to show us is that we need the communal correction that is alluded to in this passage. We need the communal correction that is alluded to in this passage. And let me give you a couple reasons and we'll jump into the text. Reason number one. Can you guys say reason number one? Reason number one. Okay. Excellent. We have the power to rationalize anything. Can I get an amen? Do we not? Do you not have the power to rationalize anything? You know you do. You're so smart, you talk yourself into doing something that you know deep down you shouldn't do, but you really want to. Right? We see this most prominently, right, with dessert. Right? I'm not going to have more than one piece. Well, that piece was small. And one, what is one really? Like one, how do you define one, right? Right? We have the power to rationalize anything. And while a lot of times it's actually funny how we do that, we also know that that, that same power that is applied in ways and sometimes is humorous, we, we also know from experience we often will apply that power to things that are not humorous but are actually destructive. Right? And, and the ability that we can apply our minds 
right, to, to something that we know deep down is not right, but we use our intellect to talk ourselves into it, to, to make a loophole for ourselves within our mind, right, with our mind, with our intellect, so we can do what our body desires, so we can do what this, 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 this broken part of us desires, right? It's a sign that sin is pervasive in us. And here's why, we, here's why we like to do this, because we want to hold two ideas uh, in our heads. We, we want to hold the idea that we're generally a good person, along with wanting to do whatever we want. And so in order to, to keep the reality that we are a good person, we have to use our minds to justify the thing that we want to do, that we know if we do it just on the surface, we'll discredit the fact that we think of ourselves as good. And so we change what we believe about the thing that we want to do. well, you know, I know I really shouldn't do this, but it's actually financially better. And so, you know, I, I will mess with these numbers a little bit. You know, we have the power to rationalize anything. And because we carry that power within us, because we are broken by sin, we need the communal correction that is alluded to in this passage. Here's the second reason we need communal correction. We are always prone to the error of turning God's grace into cheap grace. This is alluded to in Romans chapter 6. I think part of the pride that Paul is alluding to for the Corinthians here is this idea, this pride that says, oh, God has given me grace so I can do whatever I want. Jesus has died for my sins, and so ultimately I can just kind of do what I feel like doing, and I know he's going to forgive me. This idea, the more I sin, the more grace I get, so what's it really matter? And when these two things, which exist in us, go unchecked over a period of time, you end up with something like 1 Corinthians 5, a very, very extreme case of falling into persistent, unrepentant sin. So that's the relevance of this passage for us. We look at verses 3 through 5, Paul then is going to show us the gift of correction. This passage feels harsh, but maybe there's a gift for us in it. He shows us the, the part of the gift of correction is this, is that correction in, within the church context, correction is for personal protection. Look at verses 3 through 5. Paul says this, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is using the full weight of his apostolic authority, saying, my spirit is present in this church. Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when the church gathers, Jesus is there. And when you, when you gather as a church with the authority that Jesus gives to his church, here's what I want you to do to this person who has resisted every begging plead and tearful plea to turn away from their sin. Here's what I want you to do to this person who is stubborn in their sin and who is not turned away, though we have begged and pleaded. Here's what I want you to do. Remove them from the church. That's what he means by hand this man over to Satan. Kick him out of the domain of the church where God's presence is most richly felt and kick him back into the, the world under the reign of Satan, so to speak. Remove him from the fellowship of believers. This will be painful. 
In our context, we think of if this were to happen, well, and the person still wanted to, to go to church, they would just go find another church. But at this point in time, this is the church in Corinth. Remember what kind of city Corinth is? It's not like they got church steeples on every corner. This is the church. So this means being removed, being really cut off from this, this lifeline of fellowship. Now, keep in mind, this is not somebody who just sinned or someone who is struggling but saying, I want to change, help me, I want to grow, pray for me, support me, I had a bad day. No, it's not that. This is a persistent, uh, stubborn, willful engagement in persistent sin. This is the last case scenario of, of correction within the church community. Last case scenario. But still, we might ask, does this seem unnecessarily harsh? Verse 5 gives us the answer. Look at what it says. You are to deliver this man to Satan. So out of the church, give the boot. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, this idea, um, uh, tricky phrase, but this idea uh, uh, that as this person is, is kicked out, they will realize the severity of their sin, their sinful nature, and so hopefully they will be brought to repentance. And here is the ultimate reason to remove this person in stubborn, unrepentant, willful sin. Here's the ultimate reason, verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is correction for the sake of restoration. This is a sort of spiritual intervention. For this person within this church claiming the name of Jesus and yet is stubborn and persistent in sin, even though their church is begging and pleading, Paul is speaking to them to turn back. This act of removal is meant to be a sort of spiritual wake-up call so that this person would be shocked, the, the removal from the warmth of the church into the cold air of being excommunicated, that it would be a shock to their body, a shock to their conscience, a shock to their soul, where they would say, wow, I was in the wrong. I want to come back. I need grace. I need help. I need forgiveness. To which the church of Corinth and Paul would respond, welcome home. This is correction done for the sake of restoration. This is correction done for the personal protection of this person's soul on the last day, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But the Corinthians, get this, the Corinthians don't care that much about this person's soul. They don't care much about this man's soul. They don't care much about this man's life. They don't care much about this situation. They don't care much about the stepmother that he's involved with. They don't care much about this at all. And the reason that we know they don't care is because when this was going down, persistent, consistent, stubborn, engaged in, prolonged, the Corinthians shrugged their shoulders. And it's Paul who cares enough, who loves enough to speak a word of correction for the sake of restoration. This shows us something very important, that correction, when done humbly, is a gift of God for our protection. Now, some of us might be thinking this, wait a second, Jesus said not to judge. Isn't it funny when you talk to, talk to anybody about the Bible, uh, right, this thing will come, Jesus said not to judge. It's the, it's the Bible verse that everybody comes into the world knowing. It's like before you leave the hospital, they give it to the little infant. Hey, just in case you need this, just know that Jesus said not to judge, okay? And they're like, oh, okay. And every, everybody knows that. And it's true. Jesus did say not to judge, but he also said many other things around that in Matthew 7. He said, right, if you want to quote the, the, the King James, right, the thing that people always say, judge not lest ye be judged, right? But he says many other things around that. Remember, he talks about wood, right? This is a wood picture. What does he say about wood? Remove the what? 
This is the plank. This is the universal symbol for a plank. <laughs> the plank. Remove the plank from your eye. Yep. So you can move the splinter or speck. It's a universal symbol for speck. A little rotate, speck, spock, speck, right? So remove this large thing from your, this, this large reality of sin from yourself that you might be able to help remove this from someone else. Now, think about this. In order to remove a large reality of sin from your life, what do you need to do to yourself? Judge yourself. Judge yourself first. Now that you have judged, you have evaluated, remove the sin, turn away from it, receive God's grace. And then in order to remove the smaller thing from somebody else's eye, what do you need to do to them? You need to judge them. You need to evaluate. Jesus is not saying don't ever judge. Jesus is saying don't judge in self-righteousness. Judge in humility. Judge in humility, understanding that you must first judge yourself in order to be effective, humble, and helpful in order to judge someone else. Notice what Paul says in verses 12 and 13 of this verse, of this, of this chapter. So helpful for the rest of this letter. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? This is all family business. Paul says, why, why are we judging outsiders? I'm talking about in God's family. And so Jesus shows us that self-righteous judgment has no place in the church, but humble, sinner-to-sinner judgment does. Because it's how we are corrected and how we are helped, because correction is a gift of God for our protection. Here is an important question for us to consider. Do you believe that? Do you agree that correction is a gift? When done humbly, correction is a gift from God for your protection. Would you receive a word of humble correction as a sign of love, or would you receive it as a curse? Now, most of us will, will never, God, uh, you know, praise be to God, most of us will never, will, will never touch a, a scenario of church correction or church discipline or whatever phrase you want to use. Most of us will never touch a scenario quite like this, right? This is like level, this is like level 10. Most of us might touch a scenario, though, that's kind of level one, where you just see a friend, maybe in your community group or somebody you know uh, within the church, right? Again, this is family business among disciples of Jesus. You might just see somebody within your church, and, and you might see, oh, th- I see this pattern, in their life, or they see a pattern in your life that, that, is, that is not godly or that is not helpful uh, or, or that, is, that is not righteous, right? It's, it's when that person says something to you, would you receive it as a gift from God for your protection? There's questions for us. But not only is correction a gift from God for our personal protection, correction is a gift from God for the church's protection, for the church's protection. I was talking with a friend who would always get the, he lives up here, he lives up here, he, he would get the flu each winter, every winter, like five years straight, always get the flu. And he, uh, he decided, you know, I'm going to talk to my friend that's a doctor. Uh, and, and his friend that's a doctor said this, um, you get the flu every year, you know, five years running, you've got like this hor- horrible streak going, do, do you know how to wash your hands? And naturally, the friend said, yes, I do. I'm a grown man. I know how to wash my hands. And, and the doctor goes, No, do you really know how to wash your hands? Like, you got a scrub, and it needs to be 60 to 90 seconds. And the friend was like, I I don't don't know how to wash my hands, but this year I'm I'm going to begin. (laughs) Right? uh, Men are notoriously, uh, ladies in on the secret, men are notorious. They do not wash their hands. Um, (laughs) Go and pour water 
slap the water away and come back out. Uh, so so this, this is what this person uh, did apparently, and now they have learned that they actually need to wash their hands. And, and as they were, he was having this conversation with his doctor friend, uh, doctor friend was like, all, all it takes for, this, for, the, for the virus, for you to get sick, all it takes is just one contact with the particle, just one, one contact uh, of a germ, and, and, and you're done. That, that's all it takes. That's why you get it five years in a row, because you do not wash your hands, because it only takes one touch. And in the same way, it only takes one report of unrepentant, stubborn, persistent sin to exist within a church for a whole church to be damaged, harmed, and infected. That's all it takes. That's all it takes, and the whole body feels it. See, the Corinthians were looking at this sin, and they shrugged their shoulders. They said, hey, sin is not that big, big of a deal. Later, they're going to use this phrase, all things are lawful. Essentially, everything is okay because Jesus will forgive us so we can mirror our city, so we can do as we please. But as they look at this sin and they say, hey, it's all good. Jesus will forgive us. Paul looks at this one unrepentant, stubborn, engaged sin in the life of the church and says, your church is about to be destroyed because of the unhealth that is going to come from this the damage that's about to be done. Unchecked, unrepentant sin in the church infects the whole church. And Paul wants to use an image to make this visible to the Corinthians. He shows this image in verses 6 through 8. Before we look at this image, let me ask you a question. When Paul planted the church at Corinth, what portion of Scripture did he, teach, did he use to teach them about Jesus? What portion of Scripture did he use? What was, a, what, what was he preaching from? The Old, Old Testament. That thing in the back. The, big, the two-thirds thing in the back, right? Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, right? That, that's what he had. That's what, that's, that's what he preached from. That's, that's what the church was established on. He preached Jesus from it, from, from, from the law and the prophets, from, from, from everything in, in the Old Testament scriptures. And so there is a story, there's a historical event that the, the church of Corinth knew the way we knew the cross, the way we do knew, know the cross, which is the Passover. That God is people, as they were uh, trapped in slavery, forcing to bow down to evil, forcing to, 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 to serve uh, under evil uh, in Egypt, God set them free. God came to them, uh, Exodus, Exodus uh, 1 through 12, this, this kind of this beginning of the, of the redemption narrative, where God hears the sighs and groans of his people, and he comes to them, and he comes to them, and he delivers them. And one of the ways that he delivers them, it culminates in this, 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 this uh, reality of the Passover, where, where God's people took uh, and sacrificed, made an animal sacrifice, took the blood and, and, and spread it over their doorposts so that when God came to bring judgment on the unrighteousness and evil of, of the gods of Egypt and, and on Pharaoh, that, that, that God would see the blood over the doors of, of his people's homes and he would pass over them. They would be covered by the blood, right? They would receive uh, forgiveness and covering under the blood and judgment would be, would be put on those who were not covered by the blood, those who, who were not turning from their evil ways. And part of this Passover celebration is that uh, God's people were told to prepare unleavened bread, bread without kind of a yeast, uh, so that they would, they would eat it and they would do that in remembrance of this act of the Passover. 
And so Paul uses this, this, this image to, to remind them of, of, of what they are to do uh, and how sin infects a whole community. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's drawing them back to this Passover image, this idea that if you put a little bit of uh, yeast in the bread that you're making, that yeast is going to spread to the whole thing. Can I get an amen from our bakers, right? Listen, I tried to make a deep dish vegan pizza a few weeks ago, used the wrong yeast. Guess how that thing turned out? Not right, not good. A giant cracker, right? (laughs) And so when you bake things, you know that cooking is one thing. You can, you, can, you can mess up a little bit in cooking, but in baking, there is no room, no margin for error. So if you put a little bit of something in what you're baking, it's spreading to the whole thing. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that you're tolerating sin in, that is serious in one corner of your church, thinking it's not going to touch the whole body. Thinking that little bit of leaven over here is not going to infect the whole dough, the whole batch, the whole lump. We're all going to be sick. We're all going to be harmed. We're all going to be hurt. Paul uses this, this image and this, this metaphor of the, the, the old leaven, this, this leaven of sin, this leaven of, 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 of hatred, this leaven of wickedness. And he's saying, if you, if you engage in that, if you remain with that, this whole reality of your church is going to be uh, infected. So then correction, the word that he's speaking then, becomes a means of love to help heal the infection of sin in this person, but also in the whole church. So correction is for the protection of the church. Correction is also a gift that protects Jesus' reputation. Correction protects us personally. Correction protects the church from being infected and being harmed and being hurt. Right? Think of, think of, think of if, 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 if scandal and sin breaks out in a church, how many people are harmed when they become jaded from within that church, how it harms, right? It protects the church. But correction also protects Jesus' reputation. Because what we do as the church represents Jesus to our city and to our world. And Jesus cares about his name among the world and among the city because he wants the world and the city to know him. I'll tell you an interesting issue that happened recently with my name. I got a Facebook friend request from the other Claudacho. I was not, was not pleased. Was not pleased at all. My first reaction is I thought I was the only one, right? West African name, French first name, not often. Many times I meet people that say, Claude, I've never heard that. That was the first time I heard that name, right? And the sense of pride and, and, and the uniqueness washes over me, right? And so I'm checking Facebook, and there's the other Claudacho. I'm just like, no, no, Lord, this is not possible, right? So the first reaction is, I thought I was the only one, and the second reaction is this, this guy might make me look bad, right? What, what is this guy doing with the Claudacho name, right? What, just, uh, what kind of person is he? What kind of clothes does he wear, right? Who, who, who is this person doing? What is he doing to, to the brand, right? To the Claudacho brand that no one knows about, right? But, but what is he doing to my name, right? There was this sense of, this is my name, what, like, what, what, what are you doing with it? Right? And when we think about the church, the church, do you know, do you know what we are? we are? We are called, according to Scripture, we are called ambassadors of Christ. We carry His name. We, we represent Him. Do you know that if you are a disciple of Jesus in the city of Boston, you probably understand this, that for most people, you may be 
For most people that don't know Jesus yet, you may be the only disciple of Jesus within their friend circle. So what you project, what you represent, carries a lot of weight. The church as a collective represents our Lord and our Savior. We are His ambassadors. And so Jesus' reputation to some degree and extent in the eyes of our city, in the eyes of our neighbors, in the eyes of our friends, in the eyes of our world, to some degree and real extent, His reputation rides on the life that we live. Now, his name will be glorified. He will achieve his purposes no matter what we do, obviously. But we can really help or we can really harm that whole circumstance. And think about the reputation of Jesus in Corinth by virtue of this unchecked sin in that church. Because again, go back to verse 1. This is sin that not even the the not yet Christians of the city, they they would not even accept this. This brings Jesus' name through the mud. And just as it only takes one unchecked, unrepentant, persistent sin to damage and infect a church community, it only takes one scandal of unrepentant, persistent sin in a church to ruin that church and Jesus' reputation in a town. That's all it takes. Can you imagine if a scandal breaks out among a church in Boston this week, how that would buzz through the city? And people who don't have a lot of reference points for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what what do you think that's going to do to the reputation of Jesus? Right? There was a scandal that happened in in the city uh, about two years ago uh, about a pastor who who was selling drugs. And let me tell you this, newspapers don't cover churches all the time, right? Like, we're not getting, we're not getting Boston Globe coverage for this church partnership. Church is working together the way Jesus said, front page, right? But guess what was all over that newspaper when that news broke? Pastor preaching Jesus and selling dope, right? The reputation of Jesus, sullied and ruined. And so correction is a gift. Accountability is a gift, and it starts at home so that we might represent Jesus' name well in the world. Correction is a gift to help us from bringing Jesus' name, dragging it through the mud, putting another barrier in front of people that would keep them from receiving His grace. I want you to imagine the conversation with uh, this man and maybe a a friend uh, in the city of Corinth. Maybe his friend comes to him and says, hey, I thought you were part of that weird group. Those little, those little Christians, the little Christian group. I thought you were part of that weird group. Aren't they really, aren't they really devout? Aren't they really strict? Aren't they really, aren't they really like just about their stuff? Like how, how can you be doing this? And the man goes, oh no, they didn't say anything. They said it was all good. Think of the damage it does to the name of Jesus. Now imagine what the, what the man says after he receives Paul's letter. His friend says, hey, I thought you were a disciple of Jesus. I thought they were really devout. I thought they took their faith real serious. I thought they were really, really dialed in. I thought they were just really, really strict and, and really cared about living a moral life and, and being, being righteous. I, what, what, how can you be doing this? And this time the man says, oh yeah, they do care. They kicked me out. Correction protects the reputation of Jesus. Because the city is saying, we don't even think people should be doing that. 
correction protects the reputation of Jesus. Now, from all of this, there are two mistakes that we can make. Mistake one, I don't think this will be our problem, but mistake one would be, would be to read this passage and then begin to uh, go on a hunt for sin in people's lives, to become sin hunters, and to just look for any place or any reason to bring a word of correction to someone. Do not do that. I will correct you if you do that, right? That's not what Paul is calling us to do here. The other mistake that we might make, the one that we are more prone to make from this text, or just from our default, and this is what I would default to, would basically to, to not hunt for sin, but, but to remain in the place and understanding that allows us to simply shrug at sin. To simply say, well, who am I to say anything? It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter in the end. It's all good. So two mistakes and errors we might make from this text. Now, keep in mind, we're not talking about bringing a word of correction, a word uh, uh, of, of, hey, what's going on? We're not talking about bringing that word to just sin that happens once or someplace where someone is struggling. We're talking about when somebody is engaged in a pattern, when something is consistent and constant. That's what this passage is talking about. Will we care enough when we are in that pattern to receive a word of correction Will we care enough to ask for clarification when we see somebody in one of those patterns to say, hey, I see this. Can you tell me what's going on? And hear them out and be a means of God's loving correction. Correction protects us, protects Jesus' reputation, protects Jesus' church. So the question must be asked of us in this regard, thinking about Jesus' reputation. Is there a pattern of unchecked, sin in your life? That is damaging Jesus' reputation. It would not be right for us to think about this passage and think about what does this mean for us to correct others? No, let's let this passage correct us. Is there a pattern of unchecked sin in your life that is damaging Jesus' reputation. I'm not talking about uh, a sin that you are trying to, trying to uh, battle. I'm not talking about something that you're remorseful over. I'm talking about something that, that's beginning to not bother you anymore. I'm talking, to you, talking about something that you're, you're kind of beginning to, again, trying to rationalize a way to, 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 to remain in it, right? Think of even this pas- the passage, uh, sexual immorality, greed, are you, are you in a pattern? Is your, would your, does your life reflect a pattern of greed? Revilers in the passage, right? Uh, are, are there unchecked patterns of sin with your tongue? Bitterness, putting people down, sarcasm. Not the funny type, but the type meant to cut people down. Right, a swindler. Do you, do you cheat people? Do you cut corners to gain an advantage? Right? Is there a pattern of unchecked persistent sin in your life? Do you, do you treat that sin like this man treated his, finding a way to justify it, saying that it's no big deal, saying that God will give me grace anyway? If that's the case, Paul's words here are for, for you and for me. Clean out that old way of living and turn to Jesus for forgiving and transforming grace. This is why we need correction. And briefly, I want us to look at the cure. Look at verses 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, 
our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here is the cure. Correction is needed, but it is better and more important to receive the cure that can stop us from falling into sin that necessitates the need for correction. It would be better if this man was just living a righteous life to Jesus, struggling like everyone does instead of falling into persistent sin. So what is the cure that can keep us from falling into stubborn, rationalized, persistent sin that harms our soul, that harms the church, and that brings Jesus' name through the mud? What is the cure? Here is the cure in verse 7 right there for us. Be what you already are by the grace of God. That is the cure. Look at what Paul says to, to, to them. Clean out the old leaven. Because really, you are a lump without leaven. You, you, you're, you're leavenless. Live the way, live what you really are. Live out the identity that you have. Here's what Paul is saying. Old leaven represents sin, the old way of living, the old way of unrighteousness, the old way of malice, right? Paul is saying, hey, you have leaven in your life right now, but deep down who you are at your core, you're leavenless. You're forgiven. You're not trapped into patterns of sin in reality because Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. He gave his blood to forgive us, but also to make us new spiritually. We're new. We're not trapped by the old leaven. So just live out who you are in Jesus. That's the way forward. So kick out the malice, kick out the self-rationalized sin, remove that from your life, grab that old lump of leaven, throw it out the kitchen window, and live out who you are. You're leavenless. You're made new. Just as one unchecked sin can make the church infected, can spread the damage of sin to the whole lump in the same way, just one touch through faith of Jesus' sacrifice makes us righteous, clean, pure, forgiven, and brand new. And Paul is saying, this has already happened to y'all. So live out what Jesus has done. Look at what he says. Celebrate the festival. Celebrate Jesus as our Passover sacrifice. And this is how Israel would celebrate it. They would celebrate it by the week leading up to the celebration of Passover. They would get rid of all the leaven in their life, all the leaven in their house, and just have the unleavened bread to commemorate what God did for them at the Passover to set them free. And here's what Paul is saying. Just as Israel celebrated Passover for a week, the Christian celebrates the Passover, celebrates Jesus as our sacrifice. They celebrate that for their whole life. And so the way to not fall into persistent, stubborn, unrepentant sin is to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, to live out who we are in him, to live out the reality that he gave his body and his blood in our place for our sins, and to celebrate that so deeply that we say, sin, you've been paid for. Sin, I have nothing to do with you. Righteousness, I'm all yours. Godliness, I'm all yours. Generosity, I'm all yours. Repentance, I'm all yours. Jesus, I am following you because you laid down your life for me. I am celebrating that I am leavenless. The cure is to simply live out the new power and identity Jesus has died to give us. The cure is not trying harder. The cure is not becoming more disciplined. That's a nice thing, but it won't last. The cure is to live out who we are through the good news of Jesus and to celebrate it by kicking sin to the curb and walking closely 
with righteousness, sincerity, and truth in community so that when we do fall, we have people next to us who love us enough to say, get up, let's keep going. Will you change your orientation to correction? But more importantly, are you willing to live out the identity and the reality and the power that Jesus Christ has died to give to us? That's God's question for us from this text. Because Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We are no longer what we were, but we are made new in him. Let's take a moment to pray in silent prayer and reflection. I want to encourage you to simply ask God, uh, Lord, what do you have for me from this text? If you're here and you're asking questions, you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you are welcomed. And I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to ask God, if, if you feel comfortable with this, ask God, God, if this is real, if Jesus is true, would you make that known to me? Let's take a moment to pray silently and I'll lead us in prayer aloud.